Okay, promise not to hate me, but we're going for a kidney joke. So, what did the filtrate say to the kidney stone? You're in my way. Hello and welcome to another episode of Science Unscripted. As you may have guessed from my amazingly funny joke at the beginning of the podcast, today we're going to be focusing on kidneys. And we're not just going to be focusing on your kidney, because honestly, I'm not going to go too in-depth into the kidney. So if you expect an entire episode on a kidney, please go away. I'm joking, you can stay, because this is something of a kidney episode, because we're going to be talking about one of the major functions of the kidney, and that's to maintain homeostatic equilibrium of electrolytes and blood pressure. Now, the way it does this is primarily, obviously, it has vasoconstrictive efforts as well as other um, efforts that it can control in the kidney itself, but one of the primary methods of the kidney to basically maintain this homeostatic equilibrium is through something called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or because I don't have time to say that name every single time, the RAS system. Now, you might be thinking, is it one of those dumb acronyms that has a repeat if you say the word system, even though it's included in the acronym, then yes, you are completely right. And I don't care because RAS sounds way better than raw. And I'm not just going to say the RAS because I have to say the RAS system because it sounds good and I like it that way. So if you have a problem with it, that's your problem. Okay, so it's the RAS system, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And we're going to talk a little bit about what each individual part means. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to go into the etymology currently right now because I have to explain everything else first. So to give some background, I just want to kind of illuminate the sheer awesomeness that our body is. So think of it this way. Humans and animals and other living organisms, we can take in stimuli. That's Um, part of our, like, major function and one of our greatest abilities is to take in stimuli from our environment and respond accordingly. Like, say you are in the middle of a basketball game, say, and you're about to dribble, your heart rate's being really fast because you're all stressed. You see the the opponent in front of you, opponent. I was a little aggressive whenever I played basketball, but not really your opponent. You're kind of like your, um, I guess it is your opponent. I would have thought of them as like a sheer enemy, but still, you're dribbling up to the basketball hoop and you're getting ready to shoot, get dribble past them, juke them out, get up to that hoop and score. Your heart rate is probably really, really high unless you're like a really, really cool under, cool pickle under stress, but still, your sympathetic nervous system is probably getting activated. Your pupils are dilating. You, your blood pressure is increasing. Oxygenation is um, increasing. Your glucose is getting released more into the blood to be absorbed by muscles to be used for cellular respiration. Everything, your sympathetic nervous system is basically increasing your efficiency and your ability to respond. Now, that's a response to stimuli. You're getting a stressor, and that's the basically the basketball game and the situation you're in, the opponent that's confronting you. And your body is somewhat is basically responding to that stimuli. Now, that's what animals do. That's all cool and awesome. I mean, you can also have examples of bo- of bacteria who respond to chemicals in the environment and move towards it, a form of chemotaxia. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that organisms have developed an amazing acti- ability to take in stimuli and respond. Now, this is crucial to our living because if we didn't take in external stimuli, we wouldn't be able to respond accordingly and we would probably fail due 
to natural selection, and anyone who would be able to respond to that stimuli would be favored. Now, this is why we have developed such amazing senses and um, such complicated neural networks and response systems. Now, why I'm talking about this, obviously there's a point, hopefully. Um, basically, I wanted to say that your body is kind of like an organism itself. It is able to take in stimuli in your body and respond accordingly. So, for instance, um, when you are really, really cold, say your external environment is cold, and your skin, the mechanoreceptors, they're starting to sense that, you are able to vasodilate and increase... Um, I mean, vasoconstrict, sorry, and decrease the flow of blood to your skin and your periphery to keep your inside body warm and le uh, decrease the surface area of those blood vessels at your sub at your cutaneous levels to decrease the amount of um, basically heat loss. Now, that's an example of a your body receiving a stimuli from either externally or internally and responding to it. That's really, really cool. So it's not entirely conscious is what I'm trying to say. Your body is kind of like Think of your body as having a brain within a brain kind of thing, which is weird because your body has a brain. Basically, what I'm trying to say is your body is able to take in stimuli and respond accordingly to maintain something called homeostasis. Now, if you're not aware, homeostasis is basically just the description of... Think of it this way. Um, it's kind of like... I hate this analogy so much because it feels like it's overused, but it's like the thermostat of your body. I mean... Technically, yes, it is literally the thermostat of your body. It's maintaining your internal temperature, but it does so much more. It maintains, homeostasis means maintaining your electrolyte levels, your nutrient levels, your beep, your blood pressure levels, the blood volume levels, basically your body, your pH levels. Your body has a set normal rate and value of temperature, pH, um, blood pressure, blood volume, all of those things that maximizes efficiency and performance I guess, to the maximum efficiency and performance. So basically, when your body wants to stay in this comfortable range, and homeostasis is the process by which it maintains this comfortable range. So your kidneys, they aren't just two little beans um, right below your ribcage, although they are two bean-shaped organs right below your ribcage. They aren't just that. They are, and they don't just, contrary to popular belief, they don't just filter your blood. They also help maintain your electrolyte levels and your blood pressure and your blood volume. They basically get, okay, so I'm going to go a little bit more into the kidneys right now, just give you a little kidney overview to kind of illuminate the system at which the RAS system is controlled and why it may be controlled as such. Because a lot of people, the primary function of the RAS system is to maintain electrolyte values and basically maintain your blood pressure. But in a lot of cases, it increases your blood pressure. People are like, why do you need to increase your blood pressure? And that is a good question and we will get into it. So, kidneys. Your kidneys are, as I said, they're two bean-shaped organs in the renal system. The other parts of the renal system, um, basically the renal means kidney, um, other parts are the ureters and the urethra. So, just remember that. Um, they're each about the size of a fist. They are located just below your rib cage, one on each side of the spine. And what's actually really cool is that, well, I mean, technically it's not that cool because it's kind of a medical condition, but there's this thing called the floating kidney. This happens a lot in people who are malnourished or are um, like runners, people who exercise a lot and don't necessarily take in enough um, to compensate for their exercise. Basically, when you deplete your like fat stores and your glucose stores, you can start depleting and breaking down your muscle for excess glucose. Um, now, this isn't great, and what can happen is that you can start beating, um, breaking down some of the, like, visceral, 
um, linings of your organs and basically depleting the muscle and the fat and all those things around where your kidneys are and your kidneys can start to bounce up and down and then like cross on other organs and it's, it's, it's not very good. Um, so that's why it's called a floating kidney because your, your kidney is supposed to be like nestled um, on top of like muscle and fat and when it's not it, it leads to kind of bad things. So that's that's just I don't know why I included that tangent but if you're interested look up floating kidneys. So the main functions of your kidneys are maintaining overall fluid balance, regulating and filtering minerals from the blood, filtering waste materials from things that you ingest, basically like food, medication, and toxic substances. Um, your liver doesn't help with detoxification, but basically your kidneys help to remove it and filter it. So um, kidneys also create hormones to help with the production of red blood cells. They basically create a hormone called erythropoietin, which... Um, basically erythro is like re means red blood cell basically and then poetin i'm pretty sure that just means like the genesis of i don't know i'm not exactly sure but i'm guessing from context clues um they also promote blood health which um they basically do the active job of converting vitamin d to its active form and vitamin d helps to regulate calcium and phosphorus which are integral parts of your bone densities and stuff um, they also regulate um, create hormones to regulate blood pressure which is what we will be talking about in this episode through the ras system so, they filter about and receive about 200 liters of fluid a day. Now, you're obviously not peeing out 200 liters of blood, um, of, like, fluid a day. So, that's what your kidney does. It makes sure that you are excreting while also reabsorbing a lot of that fluid. So, it just filters it. It doesn't necessarily, hopefully, <laughs> pee out that much. Um... So it allows the waste to be removed from the body and essential substitutes to remain in the body. So it take, basically takes out anything you don't want, anything that's in excess, and then it maintains all the things that it actually does need, like any essential substances. So another thing is it regulates plasma osmolarity. Now osmolarity is kind of like the, if you've ever heard of concentration or molarity, it's basically the concentration of something compared to the concentration of fluid. Um, so like sub sub what are they called substances no substrate no what is it called solute solute that's it solute um compared to fluid um molarity and concentration so basically an increased osmolarity would mean that you have an increased solute so yeah and mod it does this by modulating the amount of water sodium solutes and electrolytes in the blood um, it also ensures acid and base balances. It does so by um, maintaining or excreting um, a thing called sodium bicarbonate. Uh, basically, when... I'm not going to explain that whole thing. But sodium bicarbonate acts as a buffer um, solution to kind of like a base to balance out pH. So if you're having low pH, it can compensate by excreting less bicarbonate or... I'll talk about, I want to talk about acidosis and alkalosis, but I won't. But basically, low pH, you want to excrete less because you want to buffer out a little bit, like take, you want to take, basically buffer that acid with a little bit more base, so you need more sodium bicarbonate. And then if your pH is really, really high, you might excrete a little bit more um, sodium bicarbonate because then you would be having less base and more acid to kind of restore that pH balance. Um... So I'm not going to focus on the glomerular filtration. I can't even say it. The glomerular filtration rate. That's basically a measure of an efficiency of your kidneys, um, or the removal of waste, or really any food maintain maintenance. But we're going to focus on the RAS today, and that means blood pressure. So 
let's talk a little bit about the anatomy and structure of the kidney because that's integral and i also want to talk about it so we're going to talk about it so the part of the kidney that we're going to focus on currently and today for this episode is called the nephron now the nephron is the functional unit of the kidney so think like um what's it called the nerve the neuron that's the functional unit of the nervous system while the functional unit of the renal system is the nephron um each kidney has about 1.3 million nephrons i know it's a lot um they have two main parts the tubules and the corpuscles so the cup-shaped corpuscles contain something called the glomerulus which we'll talk a little bit more about later um and the tubules are small um tubes basically if you hadn't guessed traveling through the inner part of the kidney that regulate the passage of various chemicals to and from the blood they're basically where the absorption and reabsorption kind of occur um the glomerulus has a high lot of um absorption but a little bit less reabsorption okay so um basically each has three parts um the tubules that is the first part is two of them are highly convoluted and then they're separated by a u-shaped curve called so the first convoluted is called the proximal which means closest to the proximal convoluted tubule then the u-shaped little curve thingy that's called the loop of henley so if you've ever seen a diagram of the kidneys you see like kind of like a little snake eating like a kind of like convoluted mess of blood vessels that's the glomerulus head then it goes into the proximal convoluted tubule and then it dips down that's the loop of henley in a little u-shape kind of like a smiley face but like really extended smiley face like if you just took someone's smiley face and stretch it like up and down um and then the last part is the distal convoluted tubule and then it goes into the collecting duct which eventually leads to like the bladder and all that stuff so proximal convoluted it goes glomerulus proximal convoluted tubule loop of henley um distal convoluted tubule collecting duct okay so the blood basically comes in to the glomerulus from a very very small artery called the afferent arterial now afferent means going towards so usually like going away from the brain so afferent arterial where it meets the glomerulus where the arterial wait did i say away from the brain okay so afferent means going towards okay so where it meets the glomerulus um where the arterial basically coils into a super highly convoluted ball of yarn looking substances so it looks really weird i would suggest looking up a diagram because i'm not going to be the best at explaining this basically your arteries kind of like go into a really really convoluted mess and that's to increase absorption and pressure so um you want this because you want a, a lot of um the fluid and filtrate to be absorbed by the glomerulus into the collecting into the um tubes um this allows for a higher glomerular filtration rate okay so the glomerulus is a basically it's actually derived from the latin word glomus which means clue or a ball made by will winding so it's kind of like a ball of yarn essentially um which is honestly a pretty good like adequate de- description of what it looks like so yeah think glomerulus think ball of yarn um structurally this is where the ultrafiltration occurs of the blood and then the blood vessels through the f- the blood basically then goes through the efferent arterial or efferent that means going away which then goes into the peritubial network which kind of like coils around the tubules of the nephron for reabsorption um so basically how the kidney works just a quick overview you ultrafiltrate all the blood um that goes into the tubules and then slowly um the 
the aff- efferent arterioles go into the peritubule arterioles, which they basically just coil around the different tubules and reabsorb different substances. And reabsorption occurs at different rates, and different substances are, are reabsorbed at different parts of the nephron. And it's pretty cool, actually, to be honest. It's actually really cool how your kidney works, but we're not going to go fangirling over the kidney right now because that would take way too much time. Okay, so going back to what we're actually supposed to be talking about. So I talked about how there's reabsorption, but we're just going to focus on the filtrate for a second. So the filtrate first, as I said, it goes into the glomerulus. Basically, there's ultrafiltration of the glomerulus from the afferent arterial. Um, all that coiling really, really helps to increase the surface area, and as well as there has to be really, really high pressure in that system to allow basically all the fluid of the blood, not all of it, but there's a high hydrostatic pressure that pushes all a lot of the fluid out of the blood into this glomerulus which um, is where the filtrate is. You can kind of think of anything inside the kidney, the nephron, that's kind of like the filtrate. That's the thing that's going to be excreted. So when I say reabsorption, I mean that something from the filtrate, such as sodium, potassium, water, those are being reabsorbed back into the blood, or in this case, the peritubular vessels. Now, the filtrate, that's the thing inside the tubules that'll end up in the urine. Um, basically, that's what's being excreted. So just to differentiate between the blood and the filtrate. So the filtrate, it first goes from the afferent arterial. Um, I guess it's first the filtrate when it's in the glomerulus. So it's in the glomerulus, and then it goes to the proximal convoluted tubule, then down into that loop of Henle, kind of like the ginormous, kind of over-exaggerated smiley face, um, and then back up into the distal convoluted tubule, um, then to the collecting duct, which is kind of like, you can think of it as it's, I'm gesturing with my hands, which I do realize is not really helpful over a auditory podcast, but basically think, okay, so you're starting with this little like Pac-Man-like head, that's the glomerulus, that's where the ultrafiltration occurs, then you're going on a straight line, then you're going to go down into this U-shaped dip, and then back to another kind of like straight line, and obviously this straight, these two straight lines, they're both really, really convoluted, so they're kind of like squiggly straight lines, but just bear with me, and then you go to this horizontal, no, wait, vertical, I got that right, the vertical, um, so the horizontal lines are the straight lines that I was, exa- those are the proximal and distal convoluted tubules, um, which are, you can kind of think of as like really squiggly lines, and then it goes into this vertical line, that's the cle- collecting duct, and now the collecting duct is filtered from tons of different nephrons, um, but that's where that ultimately goes to the urine, um, urinary bladder, and all those things. Okay. So that's what the filtrate path is. Um, So now that we have a basic understanding of the nephron, which is primarily where the um, RAS system will begin and act and is controlled, um, just remember that the kidney receives a lot of blood and is able to sense how much blood and solute it is getting or is going through the blood vessels entering it. So now let's dive into the actual nitty gritty stuff of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Now, just keep in mind that the reason why I wanted to talk about the structure and function of the kidney is because that's ultimately why the RAS system occurs. Um, I haven't addressed it yet, but the RAS system is primarily a way of maintaining homeostasis in the kidneys. Now, um, the kidney's main job, think of that. That's filtration of the blood, maintaining blood pressure. Um, Basically just, okay, I'm just gonna say the primary, like, main function of the kidney is to filter things in the blood. So get rid of things like waste, metabolic waste, toxins, all the things you don't want in your blood, um, and basically keep hold of and maintain fluid levels and essential solutes and any minerals that you do want. So when the kidney isn't getting adequate perfusion, which means that it's not getting enough blood or it's not getting enough like fluid, 
it can't filter that blood efficiently, which means that that stuff starts to accumulate. Now, that's kind of the context to what we're going to enter into our next um, phase of study, and that's going to be the actual RAS system. So, whoa, 20 minutes in when we haven't even, even started on the thing that we're supposed to be talking about. That's like a record for whatever digression we're talking about. Okay, so the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, aka the RAS system. So the RAS system, um, it's at its very basic function, it's basically the kidney's way of regulating blood volume, blood pressure, and which are intrinsically related. Basically, think of um, pressure, if you've ever seen a pressure volume graph, um, and, or if you know like uh, the different rules, like Charles' law, Boyle's law, all those things. Um, pressure and volume are related. Basically, if you have a smaller container and the same amount of gas, the pressure, like, think of it in, um, you can't use water because it's not compressible, but think of it as, like, molecules floating around. You have a bunch of molecules floating around in a container. If you have the same, keep, take that amount of molecules and put them in a smaller container, they're going to be bouncing against the walls a lot faster because they'll be in a smaller area. So they'll be, have more, pro a higher probability of bouncing off those containers. That leads to increased pressure. Now, if you spread them out over a wider container, the same amount of molecules, it's going to be less pressure. So increased volume, that means increased pressure or decreased volume, um, no, sorry, increased volume, decreased pressure, increased, um, decreased volume, increased pressure. I'm sorry if that confused you, it confused me as well, so we're on the same page. Okay, so, um, yes, yeah, so it's maintaining blood volume, blood pressure in the same way, pretty much, um, by increasing blood volume, it's, um, decreasing weight. No, I was right. So if you increase, <laughs> okay, if you increase the volume of a container, you will decrease the pressure. But in this case, you're increasing the... That's why I was confused. In this case, if you're increasing the volume of blood, the container size is the blood vessels. Those are saying the same size. But you're increasing, technically, the amount of molecules. So you're increasing the amount of stuff inside the containers, which increases the pressure. That's why I was confused. Don't think of pressure-volume relationships in the normal way. Think of it as if you're increasing the molecules. So kind of like in Charles or Boyle's Law, you be increasing the number of moles. Sorry if that was extremely confusing. I apologize. Okay, so um, alongside this, it's also maintaining electrolyte balance and systematic um, systemic vascular resistance, which is also related to blood pressure. Okay, so that's the initial main function of the RAS system. Now that might seem really confusing, and that's probably because we haven't gone into it yet. So we're going to continue. So it does not only involve the kidneys, as you might have guessed, because I spent 20 minutes explaining the kidneys, um, but it also involves the brain, the lungs, the liver, um, vasculature, which is basically blood vessels, and the circulatory system, and it also has systemic effects as well. So basically, pretty much the whole entire body is affected by the RAS system, um, mostly because it's effect on sodium, on like sodium and potassium, as well as other electrolytes, as well as its fluid changes, um, and it's obviously its blood pressure effects. So it is, it's pretty much the essence of the RAS system, which is honestly the essence of the kidney in most other parts of the body, is it's a homeostatic way, uh, sorry, a way of maintaining homeostatic equilibrium. So the RAS system involves many different cell types um, all over the body, but in the kidney, we're going to primarily focus on the main cells, which are two, the juxtaglomerular cells and the macula densa cells. I know, both of them are awesome. The names are so fun, like juxtaglomerular, I can't even say it, juxtaglomerular cells and the macula densa cells. I don't know where they, well, okay, juxtaglomerular makes sense because juxta means like next to, if you've ever heard of juxtaposition, juxta, that's next to, and glomerular, 
glomerulus. So they're next to the glomerulus. I can't even speak anymore. So the juxtaglomerular cells, I'm going to call them JC cells for now on because I'm not saying that. They're also called granular cells. Um, they're specialized, move cell, mu- smooth, specialized smooth muscle cells that are located mainly in the walls of the afferent arterial with a little bit in the efferent arterial. But it's important that they're main t- mainly in the afferent arterial. Now you might be thinking why? Well, if you're thinking about what's going into the kidney, that's going in the afferent arterial. Now the kidney's whole idea of their ass system is it's trying to identify and sense how much blood is going into the kidney. So it's really important that these JC cells are in the afferent arterial or the entryway into the kidneys. So they're smooth muscle cells, and um, basically the afferent arterial, as I said, it's bringing blood to the glomerulus, and the efferent arterial is bringing blood away. So the, there are some in the efferent arterial, but the pressure in the efferent arterial isn't necessarily as important to the kidney as it is um, the pressure in the afferent arterial. Okay, so they're also called granular cells because they contain these granules of a hormone called renin. Basically, like, think of it as they contain little, like, sacs of um, granules. They, like, you can kind of think of it as, like, you see a um, cell, typical cell, it's got little tiny, like, vesicles kind of things, and inside are little dots. Those are, like, renin. Well, technically, they're pro-renin, which exists in the granule cells in its inactive form as a protein called pro-renin. Now, pro-renin is activated by being cleaved by enzymes, Um, when the JC cells are activated themselves. So how does the JC cells get activated? Basically, once it is, it is activated. We will talk about how it does, but once it is, renin is released into the bloodstream where, um, when it's like activated, of course, and the renin can then um, exert its effects. So renin can be activated by numerous different stimuli. These include um, changes in renal perfusion, so amount of blood that's going to the, re- um, the renal, which is kidneys. Um, so changes in blood volume and perfusion going to the kidneys, um, which is kind of perceived by a pressure transducer medis- uh, mechanism in the afferent arterioles. So these JC cells, they can act as something called a baroreceptor. Now, if you ever heard baro, that usually relates, like a barometer that relates to pressure. So these cells can act as a, which in itself is a um, mechanoreceptor. Basically, they act as a mechanism. They can kind of sense the pressure in the afferent arterial, which is really important because that's sensing the blood pressure towards the kidneys. So that's really cool that they can do this. Um, they basically act as a baroreceptor that can sense the stretch of the arterial walls, and that gives them an indication of the blood pressure entering the kidneys. So if it's really, really low, this can indicate to the kidneys and the JC cells that they need to release renin. And we'll talk about why, because we'll talk about the effects of renin. Okay, the next stimuli is delivery of sodium and um, the amount of delivery of sodium and chloride ions, especially, to the distal convoluted tubule. Now, this is really, really important because this is sensed by the macula densa cells, which are located in the distal convoluted tubule, which, again, that's the part before the collecting duct after the loop of Henle, which is actually curved back to the other side of the glomerulus. So, you might be thinking, like, glomerulus goes, um, like, the distal convoluted is far from it, and that is true, but actually, the distal convoluted tubule, the ca- the nephron in the kidneys looks, it's so convoluted, guys, it, like, stretches and folds back upon itself, um, so the DCT is actually curved back to the other side of the glomerulus after the loop of Henle. Now, this is really strategically placed, because that means that they're close to the juxtaglomerular cells. The macula densa cells are able to sense the salt concentration of the filtrate, 
and thus it's osmolarity. Now osmolarity, again, I think I've mentioned it, but it's kind of like the concentration of solute compared to fluid inside um, blood, water, any solution basically. Now if it falls, if this osmolarity falls too low, so the solute, like the salt content is low compared to the fluid content, um, then the cells can um, cause the efferent arterioles to contract, which technically, if you have any vessels contracting, think of it as like you have a hose. You close off one side of the hose, the water will back up and increase the pressure inside that um, the place before. And the place before would be the nephron and the glomerulus and all that stuff, which increases pressure of the glomerulus and increases the glomerular filtration rate. Um, basically, glomerular filtration rate is the rate at which, um, it's kind of a measure of the efficiency of the kidney, but it's kind of the it's basically, I think I might have explained this before, but it's it's the rate at which the, um, the well, I guess you could say, it's the fil the rate at which, like, filtrate is being produced, basically, that kind of thing. It's the rate at which um, the filtrate is being um, absorbed from the blood. So, decreased sodium and osmolarity means the blood is traveling slowly at a lower pressure because that gives sodium more time to be reabsorbed by the time it gets to the distal convoluted tubule. So, there is less sense by the macula densa cells. Basically, if you think about it, is this way if you have, it's hard to come up with a good analogy, but basically, if you have like a tube, and if we know already like osmosis and diffusion, if you have a long, like, say it's in your blood, if you have a long blood vessel and there's like, the, the, you have a carrier, you have a molecule that has the ability to diffuse across. If the blood is traveling really, really slowly, it can easily just have ample time to diffuse across those barriers. But then if it's going real, if the blood is going really, really fast, the molecules will have less time to diffuse. So if there's an increased pressure and increased like flow rate, um, because in pressure is related to flow rate, um, Basically, the sodium will have less time to be reabsorbed, so there'll be more in the distal convoluted tubule. But then if there's a decreased flow rate and decreased pressure, the sodium will be lower because it had more time to be reabsorbed. So by the time it gets to the DCT, that is sensed by the sodium content and chloride content is sensed by the macular densa cells. And in response, they can cause changes to the kidney, but also cause the JC, the juxtaglomerular cells, um, to release renin. Um, the so that's a long description of the second stimuli. Now, the third is increased beta sympathetic flow um, acting through beta-1 adrenergic receptors. Now, basically, this is just a sympathetic response. So if you're in a fight or flight, you want to have increased um, broad pressure. So this is another way your sympathetic response kind of acts upon adrenergic receptors that cause your kidney to be like releasing renin which we we kind of understand that now that renin we had there's a hint towards it that renin does cause a systematic response of increasing blood pressure so um if you've ever heard of something called beta blockers this is where they act at beta adrenergic receptors they basically um block these receptors from being acted upon by sympathetic neurons and stuff and this is why they are useful for decreasing blood pressure they basically hinder that sympathetic response um, for like vasoconstruction and increased blood pressure. So the fourth mechanism or stimuli is the negative feedback loop from factors like angiotensin, um, potassium, and atrial natriuretic peptide, which that's produced by the heart. It reduces renin um, secretion and causes vasorelaxation. It's basically like a, your heart's way of being like, okay, chill out, blood pressure decrease. I'm pretty sure that's usually... Um, like it i'm pretty sure it's like alongside other uh it's just another way that your kidney can maintain 
blood pressure, but it's your heart's own way of telling the kidneys to kind of calm down. So that's basically one of the control mechanisms for the RAS system. So basically anything that leads to decreased perfusion or blood flow to the kidneys or a decreased sodium content causes renin to be released into the bloodstream. Um, now that I've told you all about what renin is and what it ca what causes it to be released, um, it's a hormone and an enzyme, but what does it do? I feel like that's the important thing. I mean, obviously we know that renin has some ability to do the RAS system. That's to increase blood pressure and to basically increase sodium absorption in the long run, of, of course. Now, the key thing about the RAS system is that it's the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So it's kind of like you can think of it as a cascade. Each different part of the cascade matters and each different part can have its own impact. So renin is just one part of the system. So um, to answer that question, we need to travel to a different part of the body instead of the kidney, and that's gonna be the liver. Now you might be a little confused um, because we've been talking about the kidney for so long and the RAS system is normally a system managed by the kidney, but the liver is also really incredibly important. It's kind of like a lot of different organs are really important in making hormones and enzymes and proteins that are used to regulate parts of like the endocrine system and stuff. Basically, the kidney does not act on its own. It has systemic effects during the RAS system, and part of that is that it works together with other parts of the body, other organs, to um, basically reach its effect. So the liver is where the next part of the system is made, and that will be angiotensin. Now technically, I said angiotensin because it's the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system, but in the liver, it's actually angio angiotensinogen. Now whenever you see inogen at the end of a... Um, like at the it's the suffix whenever you see the suffix inogen that is a zymogen which means that it is the inactive form of a protein or an enzyme that kind of thing basically it's the inactive form when you see inogen so angiotensinogen is the inactive form of angiotensin now you might be thinking why do you need something inact in like why do you need an inactive form and if you think about it why would you want it to be in its active form all the time if angiotensin was in its active form all the time, it could always exert its effects, which would mean that it would be not controlled by. So by having a, it's kind of like a feedback loop, by having the ability to exist in an inactive form, it can stay in, the, it can stay in the bloodstream, which it's released from the liver into the bloodstream. It can stay there waiting for renin to be released, which is basically if there's low blood perfusion, low blood pressure, or low mass of sodium, then that'll trigger the kidney to release renin through the macula densa cells and the juxtaglomerular cells, and then those can then activate angiotensin so it can have its effects. So it's because of those stimuli, because of those conditions, that it can be activated. So it's just allows for it to be, it's like another example of how the body is a finely tuned mechanism. Okay, so, Angiotensinogen. It's made and secreted by the liver in its inactive form, as I said. It's pretty much always made and constantly released into the bloodstream. So when renin enters the scene, it encounters angiotensin, um, angiotensinogen sorry, in the bloodstream. They just somehow meet across each other. Um, think of it like they're floating in the bloodstream and they're always like, they just wave to each other like, oh, hi, we know each other. Um, and then in the blood vessels and it cleaves renin, cleaves angiotensin at N-terminus, 
and um, this basically just makes it a little shorter, cleaves off some of the amino acids, um, and then now it's in its activated form as angiotensin 1. Yay! Okay, that's cool. So we reached our end product, right? No. Yeah, angiotensin 1 um, basically doesn't do anything. Now, it's angiotensin 1 is pretty boring. It really doesn't do much. Literally, one of the sources I was reading, um, I think it was one of the NHS, or not an NHS, and National Institute of Health sources, it literally had, like, a header for angiotensin 1, and it was underlined and bolded and everything. You, like, expect it to be really exciting and important, but then literally underneath it, the only sentence, it had one sentence, and all it said was, this peptide does not have any known biological activity. <laughs> Basically, it doesn't do shit. <laughs> so, what it does, though, because it does do one thing, it acts as a precursor molecule for something else. So, along comes um, another thing, or another enzyme, called ACE. Um, now, you might have heard of ACE inhibitors. Funny be it, beta blockers decrease blood pressure because they inhibited the RAS system. If ACE is an enzyme that helps to convert angiotensin into a more efficient, or like one that has a function, actually, then maybe ACE inhibitors also inhibit the RAS system and also help to decrease blood pressure. Isn't that so cool? Who would have guessed? Okay. They're like chemists and pharmacologists. They actually know what they're doing. It's cool. Okay, so basically angiotensin's one function is really to be cleaved again. And this is by the, um, the enzyme ACE. Now, this is really, really funny, guys. It has a really creative name. Like, biologists are super creative. The name ACE, guess what it stands for? Angiotensin cleaving enzyme. Who would have guessed? Oh my god. It's actually angiotensin converting enzyme, but I wanted to add cleaving because that would have been even more basic, but it's angiotensin converting enzyme. So if you ever hear of ACE, that's what that is. It's made, you maybe um, think of it mainly in the pulmonary tissues and it like go, going through pulmonary circulatory structures, but actually it can be made in the it can be expressed in the kidneys, um, the other vasculature, it, it can be expressed a lot of different places in the body, but a lot of it, it's expressed primarily on um, pulmonary vascular endothelial cells. So ACE is expressed, as I said, on the plasma membranes of vascular endothelial cells, mostly in the pulmonary circulation. Its job is basically to cleave two amino acids from the C-terminal end of angiotensin 1 to make it into the peptide angiotensin 2. Now, this is where the action actually starts. Angiotensin 2 is the big guns. This is where BP actually starts to change and be affected. Now, BP is blood pressure. Yeah, like, get that. BP is blood pressure. It's just too hard to say blood pressure over and over again. So, after ACE converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, it is now in its main form, where it is the primary mediator of the physiological effects of the RAS system. I mean, isn't that a cool job title? Primary mediator of the physiological effect of the RAS system. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's fine. Okay, so it has a very short half-life in the circulatory system, which is probably a good thing because you don't want an entirely like you don't want a, the molecule that increases your blood pressure to be circulating for a high indefinite long period of time because that could seriously impact a lot of your like high blood pressure has been known to cause vascular damage and also put strain on the heart so we don't want that it ha has a short half-life for one of those very reasons so yeah it's short life it's sorry it's half-life is very short you could call it a short life but it's it's half-life in circulation is pretty short it's only about 60 seconds which I mean, it's not that short as far as, like, hormones and proteins go, but it is pretty short um, on the long run. Some can be, like, for hours, some can be for days. Some hormones have effects for days. Like, the endocrine system acts over a longer period of time, but in this function, in this period, basically, it's only in 60 seconds. 
it does a lot in those that time though so don't think that it doesn't do much because it does a lot it makes it's a big bang for its buck basically um its main effects are on extracellular volume and blood pressure they can be summarized in about five different ways so it has five like five different summaries of ways that's pretty big it's got a lot of effects so number one it causes direct vasoconstriction by contraction of the vascular smooth muscle of arterioles so increasing um constriction leads to decreased radius with which decreases the volume increases the pressure um that's when that relationship actually means something true i'm sorry about my earlier uh, mess up but that's when the um those Boyle's laws and Charles laws those things actually come into a thing because the if you're decreasing the volume of the container which in this sense is the vasculature the blood vessels then you are increasing the pressure okay so directly causes systemic vascular vasoconstriction and that increases blood pressure off the bat next it causes the next part of the RAS system to be released now this is aldosterone aldosterone is made in the adrenal cortex actually i think it's made yeah um in the zonata glomerulosa it does not sound like a harry potter spell zonata glomerulosa it does i guess it leviosa whatever okay it triggers um basically the aldosterone no angiotensin 2 it triggers your adrenal glands to release aldosterone that's that's another thing we'll talk about aldosterone in a second but we're gonna go continue on angiotensin 2's primary functions first so number three, it increases sodium reabsorption through increased activity of sodium hydrogen um, antipoders in the proximal convoluted tubule to decrease sodium excretion and increase sodium content. Now, why is this important? Well, first off, one of the primary stimuli of, um, what's it called, of renin to be released by the juxtaglomerular cells and the macula densa cells specifically is decreased sodium content in the filtrate. Now, why this is important um will just decrease sodium content sorry so now why this is important is because if you have decreased sodium content you don't want to be in you don't want to be excreting your sodium because it's sodium is really really important a it works um in sodium potassium pumps those help to um basically how neurons fire synapses all of those things muscle contraction sodium is really really important and another thing is that sodium wherever salt goes water will follow because if you have a highly concentrated system your water will diffuse or osmosis will occur where water goes from areas of low concentration to high concentration so if you're moving sodium the water is going to follow that and what happens when water enters back into the vasculature that increases blood pressure which is another thing you're trying to do now notice that the first and the third um things uh basically effects that i've just mentioned of angiotensin 2 would actually help to act as a negative feedback on renin release because you're increasing blood pressure d if you recall back to renin release one of the stimuli was decreased blood pressure so you're knocking out that stimuli now it also increases sodium concentration that's also knocking out the macula densa stimuli that was basically low sodium concentration so that's pretty cool that's pretty cool that's already acting to it's basically balancing itself out it's having these effects which can act to mean like okay i'm raising the blood pressure raising the sodium concentration you don't need to be released anymore that's pretty cool like if you think about it the body is just a great at maintaining homeostasis by having negative and positive feedback loops it's so cool biology is awesome guys okay so we did that um increased blood pressure by vasoconstriction increased sodium content 
um, by increased reabsorption of action of sodium hydrogen antiporters. I'm not going to talk about what those are right now. That's nephron physiology and kidney physiology, and I'm not going to go too much more into that because I think everyone will kill me if I talk more about something that's not the RAS system. Okay, so we also had aldosterone. aldosterone. Remember that as well. So number four. It increases sympathetic activity of the central nervous system, which, as we remember earlier, um, beta adrenergic receptors, those help to vasoconstrict and incur a sympathetic response, which leads to, again, vasoconstriction and basically just increases beta adrenergic receptor um, activity. It's pretty cool. That increases heart rate because there's beta um, adrenergic receptors on the heart. Those can increase heart rate. It also increases blood pressure just because of increased blood rate. Heart rate increases more fluid. Well, not the heart rate doesn't increase the more fluid, but it, it, it just, it increases blood pressure by the vasoconstriction. Okay. So number five, it also releases vasopressin. Um, here in the U S we call it vasopressin. Um, not really sure why. Um, but then I guess it does cause vaso is like blood and it does kind of, it's vasopressin. Like you think like vasoconstrict it presses on the blood vessels but no anti-diuretic one is how a lot of other people know it that makes more sense because it's basically if you think anti that's against diuresis means to like urinate basically to spill fluid um and it's a hormone so anti-diuretic hormone means to excrete less pretty much it stops excretion um basically this increases blood volume by decreasing excretion volume and subsequently increases blood pressure so basically all of angiotensin 2's functions are to increase blood pressure in some manner and it does this on so many different levels that's so cool basically calls in tons of different body organs and systems to increase systemic volume i mean systemic volume but also systemic blood pressure so that's pretty cool so lastly we got to address the last part of the system because it's the renin angiotensin aldosterone system so we're going to talk about aldosterone now this was released by the adrenal cortex um or the zonata glomerulus zonata glomerulosa by the release of angiotensin II on the adrenal cortex. So, aldosterone is, is synthesized primarily in the zonotoglomerulus. I can't say this fast. It's synthesized primarily in the zonata, the zona, sorry, glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex. Uh, the synthesis and secretion is regulated by angiotensin II, ACTH, which is adrenocorticotropic hormone. Um, basically, adrenocorticotropic hormone is made by your anti. Is it your anterior pituitary? It's, it's part of your endocrine system. Um, basically, it creates um, cortisol. That's your stress hormone, or what a lot of people know is your stress hormone. Um, basically, it's just a sympathetic um, precursor. Kind of, I'm not going to explain cortisol. But um, basically, AC, adrenocorticotrophic hormone, or ACTH, it also can release aldosterone. Its main thing is to release cortisol. Um, it's, again, produced by the pituitary gland that regulates cortisol and androgen production. So androgen are also, um, they're kind of like the female and male sex hormones, that kind of thing. They act on the gonads and all that stuff. Um, but it also does act to release aldosterone. Alongside this, um, aldosterone release can also be regulated by extracellular potassium concentration, which is usually tied to sodium concentration due to the sodium potassium pumps now because there's a decreased sodium this can also affect the concentration of potassium so yeah pretty much if you have decreased amount of sodiums that means that less potassium can be pumped back into the cell so there's more extracellular 
potassium, which increases the concentration. Because if you remember the sodium potassium pumps, all they're doing is trying to pump three sodiums out of the cell, two potassiums back into the cell. Um, so basically there's a net positive inside the cell um, and a net negative, which creates the plasma membrane potential. So that's kind of, if you remember anything from the nervous system episodes, so when those pumps aren't working because you can't ship in sodium you don't have because there's decreased levels of sodium, that can trigger or lead to excessive amounts of so potassium outside the cell because they're not getting shipped into the cell. Now this can also trigger aldosterone release. So aldosterone affects electrolyte and um, renal homeostasis by binding to mineral corticoid, I'm just going to say MR from now on, receptors and adrenal, um, and principal, oh, sorry, mineral corticoid receptors or MR receptors on principal epithelial cells in the renal cortical collecting duct. Now, remember the collecting duct is kind of like the end part. Um, that's where a lot of sodium reabsorption or excretion occurs. So um, it's pretty effective there. So it causes sodium reabsorption in the collecting ducts by increasing epithelial sodium channels on apical membranes of the principal cells. Basically, what that is to say is that it just increases water um, reabsorption and sodium reabsorption. Because well, if you know, sodium reabsorption leads to water reabsorption because water follows sodium. Basically, think about it if when you eat something salty, you always get thirsty. So think of it that way. Um, sodium um, will go back reabsorbs because of these increased sodium epithelial channels, which then allows water to be reabsorbed. If you actually know antidiuretic hormone, how that works is that actually increases the amount of aquaporins, which are basically just channels through which water can flow. So that's how antidiuretic hormone allows for water reabsorption. Um, aldosterone actually increases water reabsorption by facilitating the, the um, channels to be made for sodium reabsorption to occur because basically it's sodium specific channels. So antidiuretic hormone, that's aquaporins, that's water specific. Um, aldosterone, that's um, what's it called, sorry, sodium specific, those are sodium specific channels. So that's cool how they both enter water reabsorption. The only difference is really the type of channel. Now, what you might be thinking is how do they do this? Now, that's pretty cool because aldosterone is an example of a steroid hormone, which means that it is um, able to, because steroid hormones, how they work is that they are hydrophobic and they're lipid soluble. So they're able to cross the plasma membrane, enter with a carrier molecule, go through the cell and affect the, have basically genomic effects and affect the DNA, um, basically what's being transcribed, and they can then alter how many channels are being made, which is honestly pretty awesome if you think about it. They're actually like directly changing the structure, which is pretty cool. Okay, so that causes sodium reabsorption in the collecting ducts by basically, as I said, increasing the epithelial sodium channels. Um, it also causes sodium and potassium ATPase activation, which leads to sodium transfusion in the extracellular space and increase potassium excretion in apical cells. So it also influences salt and water homeostasis by regulating thirst and salt appetite via mineral corticoid receptors. I don't know why I keep saying that word when I said I'd say MR, but whatever, in various regions of the brain. Now this is awesome. Aldosterone can actually act on your brain and literally make you thirsty. And it makes you thirsty so you drink more water to increase your blood pressure and makes you want to eat salty things i mean i always want to eat salty things but still it makes you want to eat salty things so you increase your sodium concentration isn't that so cool so next time you're thirsty or salty maybe like think is it my ras system just have a think okay so next it Increases basically increases sodium reabsorption, basically maintains electrolyte levels to 
sustain blood volume and pressure because again where salt goes water goes so increased sodium reabsorption increased water reabsorption there's blood vessels and blood pressure because the blood volume increased water increased blood volume increased pressure it's awesome so basically it increases pressure by making the kidneys retain sodium and water it's pretty cool okay so that's pretty much the RAS system. So in all, the overall effect of the RAS system is to increase blood pressure and concentration of solute or sodium in the blood. Now, you might be thinking, I've always heard that blood pressure, you want it to be low. I'm like, you do. So you might be thinking, I've kind of addressed this already, but you might be thinking, why do the kidneys want to increase blood pressure? I mean, everyone always talks about wanting to decrease blood pressure and in fact, there are a lot of pathological syndromes and disorders that can occur from overactivation of the RAS system, and many drugs act on the RAS system, such as ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, as I've already mentioned, to decrease blood pressure. So why increase it? Well, if you look at it from the kidney's perspective, their main job is to filter blood and maintain homeostatic electrolyte balance and fluid levels. So any disruption to this causes it to want to respond. It wants to maintain that fluid level it wants to maintain the electrolyte balance so if there's any changes it's like no this isn't good this isn't working it needs to change so blood supply for nephron tissues when that decreases the kidneys are also an organ if that blood supply decreases the blood perfusion decreases it's going to get less oxygen and as we talked about in my the myocardial infarction episode whenever tissues get less oxygen they can die and that's not good because then you can live to like kidney failure and that is really not good because if you lead to kidney failure your blood can't be filtered and you have accumulated toxins and that is not good for you you also will have trouble peeing and you'll pee out minerals you need and have yes yeah, it's just not good so um basically decreased b- blood pressure means decreased blood filtering which is a reduced ability to um basically like filter out urine products and essential nutrients to like maintain what the blood should look like like you want to get rid of those waste materials and you want to maintain those essential nutrients so without your kidneys working without that perfect perfusion or the right amount of perfusion to your kidneys which i think i said it was like 200 liters per day obviously you're not peeing that much out because it's filtering it um so you need adequate perfusion because if you don't then your kidneys can't filter out your blood and your blood when it's not filtered that waste will be accumulated and that can have basically really detrimental effects on your body it's not good they can start to like break down stuff and it's not good or interfere with organ systems it's just not good so the RAS system while it may seem counterintuitive is actually really important for our survival so there's a lot of different triggers and we've been over a lot of its different effects just remember the renin angiotensin aldosterone system it's baller it's pretty cool and the kidneys are awesome like every part of the system is really cool okay that's enough fangirling over the kidney for one day. Thank you guys for putting up with my voice for another episode. I hope that you guys slightly enjoyed it. Um, if not, feel free to reach out and pub- and harass me over email. The You can reach us at scienceinscripted13 at gmail.com. Feel free to give us any thoughts, concerns, comments. Oh, and also, we added a fun new feature. Every single episode, if you're on Spotify, I don't know if it works on like Apple Music and stuff, Every single episode will have a fun Q&A question that's specific to that episode. So feel free to take your time to, if you want to, just answer the questions. There's one for each episode in the past, as well as in episodes in the future. So feel free to check that out. See if you can come up with your best funny answers. Or just be extremely sarcastic. I'll appreciate it either way. 
I hope you guys have a lovely rest of your day. See you next time.